All right, well, here we go. This is Ken Hasser. Many of you read me on 500 Words with Kenny H. And I want to thank everybody for listening or reading us over the past uh, year or so. I know I get a little sporadic with uh, what I post, but I appreciate every, I, I appreciate the, uh, the feedback I've been getting. And I figured, um, you know, because there are such a lack of podcasts out there in the, in the, on the information superhighway that we definitely, definitely need another one uh, to add to, I think there's what, about 80 million separate uh, podcasts out there. Um, so figured we'll take it a try, we'll give it a try. And um, I wanted to have as my first guest, my good friend who I've known for, I think about 15 years now. It might, it might be maybe a little less than that. And I'll give you a little bit of background. Cal uh, Flagey is a financial planner with Lowry Financial Advisors over at Tanatioga, which is, I don't know, maybe about five miles uh, west of Gainesville. Um, he is known to many around here um, originally as the co-founder of Tipples Brews, uh, which I believe opened in when, Kale, 2009, December 2009? Yeah, December 2009. So he ran that place with a... Uh, colleague of his um, for several years. It became, it still is, a well-known uh, establishment for uh, uh, people of all types uh, in Gainesville. Um, he sold it um, a few years back and is now, as I mentioned, a financial planner. He's also my financial planner. Um, and I guess, Kale, I don't know, if, you know get, can you give us a little background as far as what you do as a financial planner? Like, describe the job. I think everybody assumes they know what it is, but what, what exactly, how would you kind of describe your day-to-day, uh, your day-to-day um, feelings in your career right now? Day-to-day dealings. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, it's kind of different every day and it, it kind of depends on what, you know, what my clients need. Um, you know, I, th- I think most people kind of have this idea that it's mostly, you know, stock picking and picking out investments for people. And, and that that's a big part of it, but you know, a lot of it is just financial planning in general, which could encompass a lot of things. But, you know, really, really my goal is to kind of help reduce financial stress for people. If that's something that they can, can outsource, you know, str- uh, financial stress is such a major stress, stress point for so many people that if they can, you know, outsource that to somebody else and I can make their lives a little easier, then that's, that's a big win for, for everybody involved, I think. So I, I forgot to mention that you have a general contractor's license, right? It's inactive, but yes, right. I still maintain right. it as its inactive status. Well, I can tell you, I'm not a construction lawyer, but I've, I've entered that world. And one of the, one of the, one of the surprisingly, uh, common areas of litigation involves, um, uh, frankly, uh, construction, you know, construction people operating without a license, um, or the idea of having somebody, um, within their company who's licensed and the, how that works. And it can surprisingly lead to a lot of litigation, especially when there's allegations of uh, faulty building or whatnot. So um, uh, even being inactive, I know that can sometimes um, create issues because I've had those issues um, in my world. But um, how did you get from, <coughs> I guess, going, having a construction license into getting into owning a beer and wine store? And then after you know, having a successful run in that business, what got you then into this world of financial planning? I think the contractor and the beer and wine store were kind of interruptions on my way to doing what I was doing now. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I graduated, you know, kind of right before the great financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of tipples became a necessity out of that. You know, I, I graduated into that crisis. There wasn't really a lot of opportunity out there. I mean, I know you're a lawyer. So some of my friends are graduating law school at the time and they were lucky, you know, to even get a job at all. Yeah. Um, I had some other friends graduating with MBAs and, you know, they were getting jobs at Target and whatnot. I mean, that was kind of a, kind of a wild time there. Um, so I saw, you know, selling beer and wine as kind of being recession proof. That's kind of where that idea came from. Uh, I figured people drank more when times were tough and they celebrated more when times were good. So it kind of seemed like a good, a good business to be in. Um, you know, plus the craft beer movement in Florida was really taking off around that time. So I kind of saw an opportunity there to ride, ride that wave up. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of where that happened, where that got started. As far as the general contractor thing, my dad was a contractor. Um, you know, this is kind of a sad story, but he, you know, he got cancer and ended up passing away from that. Um, so I rushed to get my contractor's license when he was really sick, just to kind of keep him, you know, operating and to help him, you know, finish his contracts. You know, again, that was going right into the great financial crisis, um, where nobody was building anything anywhere. Um, I remember going down to Orlando to a bid meeting to do a really small job for a fire station. It was like a renovation of a fire fire station. And, you know, I didn't want to be late. So, you know, I left early and got there really early and I was the first contractor there and I was overhearing the, uh, the project managers talking, you know, and they were saying like, man, we were lucky to get, you know, one or two people to show up for these in the past. And we had 80 contractors coming to this pre-bid meeting. And, you know, I heard that and I just, you know, kind of picked my stuff up and left. I'm like, this is not sustainable to bid bid against 80 other people for a small job. You know, it's, it's just not a good, good situation. Um, so then again, that's where the, uh, the tipples brews came from. It was out of, out of necessity to be able to pivot into doing something that would actually, you know, work in that economic environment. And that's something I've always admired about you because you're always adjusting because that's how I practice law. I've tried to always look at other areas because, you know, just like contractors, just like in the business world, beer and wine sales, there are ups and downs, especially in the legal field. There's certain areas, be it through the economy, be it through, um, you know, the legislature, um, how laws are passed that affect kind of the bottom line. And, my philosophy has always been you have to always be prepared to adjust your, frankly, your law practice to, to um, compensate for the ups and downs in the market. Because, again, a legal market is no different than the other markets which, which you've dealt with and which you deal with with your clients. So that's, uh, that's really interesting. I never really thought about what you were saying about 2009 particularly because, again, that was a time – even in my career, where it was kind of touch and go, um, because, you know, there were a lot of big concerns um, financially for a lot of law firms back then. So that, that's really interesting. Now, you wonder if you may, if you went active again with your construction license, I don't think you would have the same experience with an 80-bid uh, small job situation, right? No, yeah, I think, yeah. you know, the construction market's you yeah. know, doing really well right now. And I've definitely, you know, toyed with the ideas of yeah. maybe I should reactivate it and go do, you know, some side jobs. But you know, I'd rather just stay focused with what I'm doing and that way I can grow, you know, what I'm doing right now and keep my focus. And, and that way I don't get, you know, sidetracked and end up just doing an okay job at a lot of things or I'll do a really good job at one thing. 
So in the world of finance right now, you kind of touched on kind of your a little bit of your day to day and your interest. But do you have any specific interest, I guess, within the world of financial planning that really kind of interests you, particularly right now um, in this current environment? Uh, I mean, my personal interest, I mean, it's always I always like to try to find, you know, opportunities somewhere. Um, But, you know, my personal interests are a little different than what I try to do, you know, for my clients. Uh, You know, the clients I want, you know, I want them to have a portfolio that will, you know, that will work for many different situations. Um, You know, I kind of want to, you know, future proof their lives a little bit. Um, it, it's so hard to predict exactly what the market's going to do. Uh, you know, I think going into, you know, March, 2020, I think, you know, when the market was really going down and selling off during the, the big COVID scare, I did not think anybody had anticipated that it would come back as quick as it did and then surpass what it was before COVID. You know, a lot of people were dusting off their, you know, financial crisis playbooks and, you know, they were getting ready to be in, you know, multi-year, uh, you know, drawdown. Um, and then that ended up not happening. Uh, so just being able to position portfolios for clients so that they can, you know, grow their assets, but at the same time, you have it appropriate for their risk tolerance. So if there is a big sell off, you know, they won't, you know, they won't feel it as much as, you know, if they were, uh, you know, fully invested in something, in something risky. I distinctly remember I was driving to, uh, bankruptcy court up in Jacksonville. It was early March. And I think you called, uh, and this was right on the brink of, um, you know, COVID shutdown. And, uh, I remember us having that conversation and I don't, I don't think we were even really, really certain what was going to happen. Right. I mean, I think there was a lot of concern. I think the markets were dropping, you know, I think Dow was dropping thousand, twelve hundred, easy, fifteen. It was very reminiscent of late 2008, September 2008, that, that volatility at that point. And I recall us saying, we didn't really know what was going to happen. And I can tell you, certainly in a million years, I never would have guessed that we would have had the run-up we've had over the last year and a half, especially considering all the uncertainty with COVID and then obviously the political uncertainty we've dealt with, especially since uh, November up until January. So um, it's remarkable, but it's also kind of scary, especially when you look at what's been going on this past week. Today, obviously, was another uh, hard-hit day for tech stocks after, you know, they had a little bit of a run-up after, um, I think, about a week of uh, getting really pummeled. So, you know, we look at a time right now where I think, you know, you have that, that, that I think, some risk right now as far as what's going to happen, especially with high inflation, especially with, I would say, concerns about the Fed raising rates um, several times this year, um, in addition to, you know, issues that we see with tech stocks. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that about where we're at right now. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so hard to, to time the market and figure out exactly what's going to happen. I mean, you know, today and tomorrow's disasters, you know, never really play out like the disasters of the past, although, you know, people, you know, expect them to be. So, you know, with the inflation, I see a lot of parallels to what's ha- what happened in the 1970s. Um, yeah. You know, there certainly are, but it's not going to be, you know, a direct repeat, you know, so kind of, you know, dusting off your 1970s playbook might be kind of a dangerous, you know, scenario. Um, you know, like in, in 2020, we really had, you know, kind of two shocks, you know, one was the COVID shock, um, and the market's sharp reaction to that, you know, everybody was you know, busting out their 2008, 2009 financial crisis playbooks. 
And, you know, if you followed those, that would turn out, you know, to be a mistake because you would have been expecting this big, long, you know, multi-year drawdown, you know, taking years to recover. Um, but the next shock that we had was the policy response you know, that pumped so much money into the system while driving interest rates down. Uh, so there was this explosion of economic output, which otherwise you know, wouldn't have happened. Um, it wouldn't have been expected given the fact that the economy was effectively you know, shut down. Uh, so the market didn't only quickly recover, but it also shot past to its shot past its pre-pandemic levels. Um, you know, I mean, there's concerns about the supply chain, you know, so that's kind of why the market's a little, a little jittery right now. Uh, it seems to be pricing in four interest rate hikes next year. Um, but what if there isn't four interest rate hikes, you know, and, and you're, you're betting your whole strategy on there being four hikes. So really it's about, you know, putting together a portfolio that you can live with, you know, so if you are really comfortable, with a lot of risk, you know, you take a little more risk, but if you're not, then it, it still needs to be something that can perform well, you know, while being invested, um, where you're not taking a ton of risk to where you can't sleep at night when there is these, these drawdowns. Um, think, would you agree though, that regardless of, regardless of the pandemic or some of the issues we've had these past two years, that having interest rates near 0%, ordering all those negative interest rates, that was going to be unsustainable long-term, right? Potentially. I mean, it could, we could be at a, a situation where, you know, we're so hooked on these, these low interest rates that we can't wean ourselves off them. Um, there might be a situation where they, they raise rates a few times. Um, and then the economy, you know, really starts slowing down and they have to, you know, put the brakes on that. Um, I mean, they may not be able to raise rates, you know, a ton. You know, like I said, four, you know, like I said, the market is expecting four right now, but. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if you got to the end of the year and there was only, you know, two. I mean, that, that is a real possibility. It, it will be something because I, one thing I can see as a bankruptcy attorney is that if rates are raised, even let's say we have, a, I don't know, a point and a half, you know, eased in over a quarter, four quarter point raises, you know, maybe a half, that that will have such an effect because there's so much. You know, I don't know what the total uh, American credit card debt is right now, but it's probably I, I know it's somewhere in the trillions, right? So that sort of that sort of bump up, I can see really. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't quote me on this, but I think the total credit card debt is actually higher than the student loan debt. I could be wrong that on was, that. That one shocked me. That one shocked. Yeah, I, could, I could be wrong, so don't yeah. don't quote me on that. But I think yeah. I remember seeing that somewhere. So, what I would see is if if you have a, you know, a point or two point bump in the prime rate, that that would lead to. What I, I mean, it would be good for my business, okay? Because I'd be, I could be seeing a lot of people falling with, you know, unable to sustain their unsecured debt. I mean, they've been, you know, there was this myth. Well, there was this thought within the bankruptcy world that there'd be some incredible numbers of filings over the last, especially year, due to COVID. The opposite has happened, as you said, because so much money has been pumped in. Um, this is a factor too, which we're, I think, you know, policymakers. Um, and the Fed has to think about because that, you know, any sort of increase, that's just going to get, you know, who's going to pay for that. A lot of the people are going to pay for that are the consumers, the debtors that carry a, carry a debt load, and it's going to be unsustainable for them. And at some point, they're going to have to, you know, you know, basically just cut, cut, cut bait, so to speak, and, and, you know, file sevens or file thirteens. And that's going to create a potential scenario that we saw back in 2008, 2009 when things were insane. So, 
Um, but then again, I, I think you make a good point, though, in that are, are, are Americans addicted to low interest rates? Because it's been that way for 20 years now. I mean, I mean, I remember when I was, you know, uh, in 82, 81, I remember six, seven years old, I think I heard something about mortgages being 15% and that was normal. I mean, you know, it, and I can't ever see it going back. To that. I think you would have a revolt in this country. So. Yeah. And that's the other thing is, you know, the housing market, you know, is so hot and, you know, when you start raising rates, then that makes it where people can afford, you know, less monthly payment, you know, so that'll slow down the housing market a little bit. Um, also, I'm not sure if anybody's really noticing this. I haven't really seen it brought up too much, but, um, you know, people's homeowners renewals for their insurance rates have gone up significantly, um, for this, you know, for 2022. And so all those little things, you know, add up into that, that monthly, uh, burden, you know, and that makes, it kind of puts a ceiling on what people can afford. I can tell you, our homeowners association, um, we have had issues. We have, you've been to my neighborhood, we have trees, right? You know, about 1,400 oak trees, and they have created uh, issues with the brick walkways, right? So we had two people over the last couple of years fall on those walkways, sue the homeowners association, sue the insurance, right? Insurance pays out six-figure settlements, apparently, on both. And guess what? Insurance drops us, and then the HOA is stuck with having to pay a, you know, find like a, almost like a junk bond type insurance policy, and they're stuck with premiums at seven times the rate that we're paying, which gets passed on to us. Yeah. Um, and these are things which affect our home values potentially because, you know, it all, it all, you know, mortgage payment plus the HOA payment, and these are things that all kind of play in. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit unrelated to what you're talking about, but it talks about how these, how everything creeps up, creates stress, especially on the proverbial middle class. That even exists right now. Um, but it's, it's something to uh, think about. I, I want to talk to you about crypto. Okay. So oh, you boy. talked to me, we, we were, we were, I think <laughs> right around the time, right again, right before COVID, I think we were, I think right when I started my firm with uh, Jennifer, we, uh, we were having a conversation River patty cakes in my neighborhood, and you were like, "So, what do you want? To, when do you want to go invest in crypto, Hesser?" And this was two years ago, when I was kind of. I, I should point out that yeah. that is a joke. That was a joke. By it was the way. a joke. Uh, because, but I because wonder of, because of my licensing and, and the way regulation is, it yes. uh, the regulation is always lags behind the technology a little yes. bit. All all the new trends, uh, you know. So technically, I cannot um, I recommend not- buying, selling, or holding okay. crypto. Um, but I can discuss it in general. Okay, so for the uh, for the uh, uh, the SEC regulators that are that are watching this or listening to this podcast, I am just paraphrasing. Okay, so I'm not I am not actually um, spouting verbatim the uh, talk of my financial advisor. But that being said, the the crypto craze, and I think it's you know. I mean, I read now that I have not, I'm, and I know nothing. I won't say I know nothing. I'm not a big crypto guy. I understand crypto to be this, and you can correct me, but it's essentially a privatized form of currency with the hope being that one or two of these currencies over a you know long term would be accepted as a form of payment similar to the US dollar or the euro or the 
in yen or whatever, you know, major, you know, world currencies there will be. Um, and I guess the hope is that basically you create a market where, you know, you have these private currencies competing with actual, you know, national um, back currencies. And you have now part and parcel that as a trade. So is that accurate or am I not on the right, not on the right um, wavelength? <laughs> I think there's a large group of, uh, we'll call them crypto enthusiasts that want it to be a currency that do believe it will be a currency. Um, but I, it just doesn't really seem to be very currency like to me. Um, you know, one of the problems is, is you really have to jump back and forth between, you know, dollars and, and, you know, a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, because at the end of the day, you're eventually going to have to pay your taxes and dollars. Right. 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 So where it's mostly being used as a currency, I mean, it's, it seems to be doing really well for, you know, drug trade and, and fraud. Um, I believe nearly all of the southern border, uh, drug related money seizures have been crypto in the past year. Right. Um, I think the IRS sees something like 3.5 billion in crypto last year. Uh, so it seems to be very useful in that regard. Um, it also seems to be pretty useful, you know, if you want to get your money out of a collapsing country. Uh, I know a lot of people in Turkey and Lebanon has, have been, you know, buying cryptocurrency. Um, because even though it's volatile, it's, it's more stable than their currency. Um, you know, so, so the end game is really kind of hard, hard to, to really pin down. You know, I've heard it being compared to digital gold. You know, I'm not really sure that's a good comparison, but, you know, I think calling it some sort of, some sort of asset that would be accurate, you know. Um, obviously, if you bought some really early on, you would have done done quite well. Um, but a lot of people have gotten you know, really wiped out in some of these, you know, alternate coins that are out there. Um, so yeah, I mean, you hear a lot about you hear a lot of coiners talking about you know the Lindy effect, right? Which is this the future life expectancy of a technology or an idea is propor- proportional to its current age. You know, so the argument is since bitcoins have been around for ten years or whatever. You know, that's lasted this long. So it's going to continue, continue to exist. Um, but part of me kind of wonders that if there's this over awareness of the Lindy effect, does that distort the effects actual, actual outcome? You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I would have, I, I'm guessing that you have about you know, thousands of different cryptocurrencies right now. I think ultimately there would have to be a small number that survived this, right? I mean, I, I can't, I, I, it was, I've used the word sustainable several times already, but it would seem unsustainable over a five-year period that you would have, you know, 10,000 different, you know, different uh, cryptocurrencies, which are just being traded in the open market like that. It just, it would not make sense to me. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like there's going to be, a, it seems like a bubble would eventually be inevitable, Right. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those are definitely going to go to zero. I mean, yeah. I think even the most, even the most, um, you know, frantic crypto enthusiast would agree that a lot of those are going to go to zero. Um, but, you know, but I doubt just the, the concept's going to go away anytime soon. Um, you know, but just because it's not going to go away doesn't necessarily mean it's going to continue to increase in price either. You know, 10 years from now, I wouldn't be surprised if Bitcoin was worth half a million dollars, but I also wouldn't be surprised it was worth, if it was worth $5. You know what I mean? And what about Dogecoin? Okay, so we hear a lot about that uh, because of the money. Do we still hear about that? Is he still on that? I don't... I thought he, isn't he, isn't he a major backer of that? 
I mean, he was. He yeah. was. Oh. I don't know. I stopped paying attention to Dogecoin. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I, it, it's a, it's one thing with crypto though. It has stayed in the it has stayed in the national conversation much longer than I was expecting. I mean, you know, we, you know, I, I don't know. Is is there still is there still a lot of um, I guess buzz about stocks? Like we had, we had the GameStop situation last year. That was obviously very, uh, very much uh, discussed and uh, theorized about as far as the future of these sort of, you know, hyped up uh, random companies that would then be, you know, basically, uh, you know, uh, inflated value-wise by a Reddit thread. Um, is that yeah. still a thing or is that kind uh, of back down? You know, I haven't paid attention to GameStop in yeah. particular, but there has right. been a lot of... Um, of of other types of companies that are kind of like you know growth companies that have really gotten destroyed lately. I mean, you know, I saw a list the other day of of some of these companies that were you know kind of darlings to the pandemic that are down you know fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty percent. You know, Peloton is one that that kind of comes to mind. Um, and there, you know, there's quite a few others. A lot of the SPACs got destroyed. Um, so when you look at a list like that, you know, things look absolutely terrible. But then when you look at, you know, the big market indexes that are only, you know, a couple percent off their highs, you know, it, it looks a lot more normal out there. So. Yeah, it's, um, it is, uh, I have to say I was really, really, um, I, I found it alarming just seeing how that GameStop situation went and that. Maybe I'm not as huge, I'm not a huge student of economic history. I am sure if you go back into the last, especially the 19th century, right? I'm sure there were very similar. There probably were similar analogies to be made as far as you know the sort of. of um, well, actually, you, you know, um, if you read about the history of uh, Europe, you ever hear the tool, uh, the tool of uh, not the tool of panic, but the the, yeah, the, the fact tulip mania it, or, or whatever mania, it was, yeah. yeah. So I guess that maybe an analogy. This is not anything new. It's just done on a, on a kind of a hyper level now. Yeah, uh, and there's there's the, the South Sea bubble. I mean, there were. Yeah. I mean, there's been you know repeating history of this. I mean, the dot com bubble was. You know, you can make some similarities to that. Yeah. Um. You know, there's some of that happening, but you know, but kind of like the. Uh, you know, like I said, if you look at the general, you know, market indexes like the Dow Jones or the S P five hundred or even the Nasdaq. You know, they're, they're not nearly as dramatic, um, in their losses lately as, you know, some of these meme stocks have been. Yeah. So to wrap this up and what I'm, what my goal is for these podcasts, try to keep them to around a half hour, just to keep them kind of a, you know, a more, um, quicker listen. Is there any single piece of advice in your experience going forward that you could give to somebody interested in, you know, maybe dipping their toes into some stocks? or some bonds or a mutual fund or trying to really focus on their retirement? Is there something that you've garnered over the last few years um, uh, in just general um, terms? Yeah. I'm, again, because of, you know, the licenses and the regulation, you know, I can't really make specific uh, recommendations. You know, I, I need to say that you need to talk to a professional um, because your situation may be different than, you know, somebody else's situation. So blanket recommendations are, are never a good idea. But there is some, you know, general, you know, kind of educational statements I can make. 
which is, you know, I think we saw this a lot with cryptocurrency and some of these meme stocks and some of these, you know, really mega growth stocks that we saw, um, you know, during the COVID time period is it's important to stay, to know your risk tolerance, um, stay diversified. And just because, you know, one particular sector is doing really well right now doesn't mean it's going to continue to do really well, you know, forever. Um, and we saw a little bit of this, you know, in this past year where, you know, the tech stocks and everything, you know, went absolutely crazy. Um, and then you started to see some of these kind of old world stocks, you know, old economy stocks, you know, kind of really take off while tech was kind of falling off. I mean, you see things like the, uh, the railroad stocks have been doing really well. Uh, energy companies have come back. Commodities have been doing really well. And, you know, that hasn't been the case for the past, you know, few years prior. Um, so, you know, paying attention to being properly diversified, being aware of your risk tolerance. Um, and then if you are really making speculative bets on things like, you know, cryptocurrency or meme stocks, you know, you really need to go in with, you know, kind of Vegas rules, right? Like you don't go in with more money than you're willing to lose. Kale, thank you. Um, are you still doing your podcast? I know you were, you were doing your Made in Gainesville podcast and had a lot of interesting guests uh, over a couple year period. Are you, is it, are you still, um, uh, are you still doing that? Are you still looking to maybe? Uh, yep. Made in Gainesville is still up? happening. Uh, okay. we are having a barbecue pit master on. I think we're okay. recording Monday, I believe. So that should be out sometime, sometime next week. I would highly recommend this podcast, Baiting Gainesville. I've, uh, I was a early guest on it myself. Um, we had a real good, this was back in, uh, 2018. We were discussing politics and wrestling, right? Um, but he's had, uh, even if you're not from Gainesville, uh, great diversity of uh, guests and different conversations. And, um, Kale's really good at what he does. And, uh, Kale, thank you for uh, coming by today on this inaugural, um, we're going to call it 500 Words Podcast. I may have a different name at some point. And um, I wish everybody a uh, good day. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks.